0: Waiting on the Supremes to rule on the word marriage today, Tuesday, March 26. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. It's not just Americans outside the Supreme Court, as the justices hear arguments on same-sex marriage.
1: I'm very glad we are here together, French and American, because I'm convinced that this issue is universal. It should be uh, discussed everywhere in the world.
0: We'll hear views on gay rights and same-sex marriage from France, Russia, and South Africa. And later, what's behind a surge of anti-Muslim violence in Myanmar. Plus, new uses for Albania's old and ubiquitous concrete bunkers.
2: People started to use the bunkers to live in, but also to build shops in them or grow mushrooms.
3: PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A historic moment in Washington today. The U.S. Supreme Court, for the first time ever, heard arguments for and against same-sex marriage. Historic or not, it's not clear that the court will rule one way or the other on this issue. Comments from the bench suggested that justices are feeling cautious about moving too fast into uncharted waters. There will be more arguments tomorrow, and it's not just the U.S. listening with bated breath. This is a topic of great interest in many countries. Just ahead, we're going to hear how our debate over same-sex marriage resonates in France, Russia, and South Africa. But first, let's hear some global reaction gathered on the sidewalk right in front of the Supreme Court today. Here are the voices of two people, one from Colombia, the other from France, who were there to support different sides in the debate.
4: We are here for
5: equality, defending the right to marry the person that I love,
6: which is a man.
1: I hope they will defend a marriage and keep it between a man and a woman. I'm very glad we are here together, French and American, because I'm convinced that this issue is universal. That's why it should be uh, discussed everywhere in the world.
0: That woman in Washington hails from Paris, and last Sunday in the French capital, hundreds of thousands like her demonstrated against same-sex marriage. Vivian Walt is a correspondent for Time magazine based in Paris. She says the debate in France over gay marriage strongly echoes the debate on this side of the Atlantic.
7: President François Hollande promised to bring in gay marriage when he was elected nearly a year ago, and he is finally doing it. It's already passed France's lower house of parliament, And it's going to the French Senate, the upper house next week. By all accounts, this will pass, although it has been a very, very bitterly divisive issue in the country.
0: And what's made it so divisive, and how has that division been expressed?
7: Well, you've had hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets, um, the biggest demonstration being just two days ago on Sunday in central Paris. But aside from that, the debates, the arguments, the fractious politics around this has, has gone on really for several months now. In many ways, it's the biggest, most divisive social issue probably in decades in France. There are many, many people who are deeply ambivalent about the issue of gay marriage and even more specifically the issue of whether or not gay couples should be allowed to adopt children. Anything that touches upon the whole issue of um, family life becomes very, very sensitive in France.
0: So, I mean, as we'll hear in a moment, some of these issues about the welfare of children of same-sex couples are, along with the current uh, attitudes towards homosexuality in Russia, are coming up there as well. But, I mean, overall in France, I mean, are these uh, beliefs, are these attitudes that are held by the majority of people?
7: No, they are not. Pretty much every opinion poll that has come out in recent months have shown that generally about two-thirds of French voters are for gay marriage, although just under half are for adoption by gay couples. And actually, in many ways, the two-thirds who do support gay marriage are driven by one very essential French concept, and that is equality. And um, in a very canny political move, President Hollande basically very much linked the two concepts, gay marriage and equality, which, of course, is a basic tenet of the French constitution And so he came out and he said, this is not about gay marriage. This is about marriage for all. And the bill is called the Marriage for All Bill. And therefore, people who supported the basic principle of equality, almost by definition, had to support gay marriage. This was his political argument. And it turned out to be a very, very effective one.
0: Vivian Watt with Time Magazine in Paris. Always good to speak with you. Thanks.
7: You're welcome.
0: In Russia, there's very little support for same-sex marriage. In fact, several Russian municipalities have passed laws banning any mention of same-sex marriage in front of minors. Journalist Masha Gessen has written about those laws from a very personal perspective. She's gay and a parent. Gesson is also the director of Radio Liberty's Russian service.
1: Russians are following the debate over same-sex marriage in the States and in the rest of the world. But in ways that might surprise Americans, Russia is generally living through a period of almost unprecedented anti-Americanism. And homophobic rhetoric has become a part of that anti-American campaign, with conservative politicians pointing to the United States as an example of an immoral country where perverts are allowed to raise children. That's a quote. Uh, That's actually a quote uh, about me.
0: You've written a very moving essay in the International Herald Tribune that talks about what it's like uh, to be in a gay couple raising children in Russia. You start off by describing how several municipalities in Russia have adopted laws banning what they call homosexual propaganda. What are these laws? What do they mean?
1: These laws ban what they call uh, information that can cause harm to the spiritual or physical development of minors. They include the claim that same-sex, and heterosexual relationships are, quote-unquote, socially equal. So they basically enshrine second-class citizenship for gays and lesbians in law.
0: I'd like to know what this moment has been like for you and your family.
1: Uh, I have felt outrage at regular intervals. I felt despair. I felt like maybe we should just back up and leave. I definitely feel like our oldest son needs to leave the country soon, and he will. He's going to start attending boarding school in a different country, just to make sure that he's safe.
0: And when you say just to make sure that he's safe, do you think that some violence could come down?
1: Violence is certainly a concern, but that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that at some point I'm going to find the social services on my doorstep, um, yeah. attempting to take my adopted son away. This is something that's already happened to some opposition activists who are not gay. This is a tool that they use against people that the Kremlin doesn't like in general. It's an old Soviet tradition. It's the old KGB playbook. They go after the most painful and vulnerable parts of us. I don't find anything as frightening as a threat to my family and my kids.
0: You also explained in the International Health Tribune essay how one of Russia's most prominent homophobic politicians attacked your family directly in a recent newspaper interview.
1: This is an interview in which he was uh, extolling the virtues of these homosexual propaganda laws. And the last paragraph in the interview was as follows. The Americans want us to have children taken out of orphanages and brought up by perverted families like Masha Gessens.
0: Wow. And so what do you do with When you read something like that, I mean, why don't you leave?
1: Well, first, um, I cry. You know, I consulted a lawyer asking him whether he thought the threat was imminent. He said, the answer to your problem is at the airport. I don't want to leave because it's my home.
0: A well-known Russian media personality, Anton Krasovsky, was fired a few weeks ago after revealing that he's gay. He came out. I I guess you can't be with state-run TV in Russia and be gay these days. That's what it seems like.
1: I mean, working for state-run TV is holding a propaganda job. You can't be an effective propagandist uh, in a country that bans homosexual propaganda if you're gay.
0: Krasovsky said this recently in an interview about his departure, I don't want to become a Russian Harvey Milk, a reference to the former member of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco was assassinated. He continued, as a matter of fact, I don't see how a Harvey Milk type can suddenly rise from within the Russian quiet gay community, which doesn't have the guts to stand up and fight for their rights and their equality in a nation where it is more appropriate and less shameful to be a thief than a gay. I don't want to fight with the state. I want the state to leave me in peace. Can you relate to that point of view?
1: But I think that Krasovsky has done something absolutely remarkable. He is, as you said, a well-known television personality who came out on air and uh, risking his career and losing his job and uh, his life's work. I think that takes an incredible amount of courage, and I think it also testifies just to how desperate the situation has become uh, for gay people, even gay people who have felt very much a part of the system.
0: Masha Gessen is the director of Radio Liberty's Russian service and the author of The Man Without a Face, a biography of Vladimir Putin. Masha, thank you very much. Thank you. We turn now to South Africa, where the courts have upheld the right of same-sex couples to marry and where gay rights are protected by the nation's post-apartheid constitutional ban on discrimination. That was in 1996. These protections, though, have not put an end to discrimination or hostility toward gays in real life. The world's Anders Kelto is in Cape Town, South Africa. He's in the middle of a year-long project following a group of high school students from a township there, and he's been talking to those students about gay rights. And Anders, you followed a group of debate students at the Cape Town Holocaust Center. How did the subject come up about gay rights? The, uh, The debate teacher had wanted to take these
6: students there so that they could think about parallels between the Holocaust and apartheid. But what was interesting was that the parallels that they apparently drew were not necessarily between those two things, but between the Holocaust and gay rights. And they ended up spending most of that time talking about how this trip to the Holocaust Museum made them realize that gay rights are important. So the kids kind of brought it up on their own. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting conclusion for them to draw. Uh, Was there anything in what the kids had to say that really struck you? The student who really struck me was a ninth grade girl who talked about how before she went to the Holocaust Museum, she thought that being gay was bad. And she said, that's just what you hear from your parents and your grandparents and people in your community. And she had never really questioned it until she thought about that issue in the context of other historical forms of discrimination. And it was this big aha moment for her where all of a sudden she felt completely different.
0: But for the older generation and for other people who are, you know, just plain homophobic, I mean, it's established in the Constitution of South Africa, and yet in real life, uh, there's still homophobia.
6: Yeah. In in black, low-income townships in South Africa, there's still a lot of hate crimes, and homosexuality is seen as taboo, and it's hugely frowned upon by many people. So there's this gap between the law, which protects the rights of same-sex couples, And how life for gay people, particularly in poor communities
0: and in rural areas, plays out on the ground. So what's happening then? I mean, where is this shift coming in? I mean, if there are people who are older than them who are still kind of rooted in homophobia in the townships, are we talking about a generational shift here?
6: Yeah, it is a generational shift, I think. Um, Right now, high school students in South Africa are part of what's called the born-free generation generation children who were born after 1994 when apartheid ended. That generation in general seems more tolerant of difference, including differences in sexual orientation. I can see a difference between their parents and them in the way that they approach issues like sexual orientation. And there is a noticeable shift taking place among that younger generation. The world's Anders
0: Kelto speaking with us from Cape Town. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. Find out more about Anders' year-long series inside a South African high school and read his blog, that's at theworld.org slash school year. You can also join the conversation with Anders on Twitter. Just include the hashtag #schoolyear in your tweet. Still ahead, 10-foot snow drifts where they least expected it on PRI. The world
3: is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Worman, This is The World. You know the environmental mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, this story is kind of about all three and takes us to Albania. Dotted across the Albanian landscape, you'll find more than half a million concrete bunkers. They're leftovers from the Cold War. Albania's former strongman, Enver Hoxha, built them for defensive purposes. And since the end of communism, many of the bunkers have been repurposed. But there are so many, Albanians just don't know what to do with them all. Here's the world's Clark Boyd.
8: If you're looking for a poster boy that embodies communist strongman with an iron fist, Enver Hoxha's is definitely your guy. Let's tick the boxes. Massive state security apparatus? Check. Cult of personality? Check. Rampant paranoia and xenophobia? Check. And double check. Here's a guy that not only feared attacks from the West, but also from fellow communists like Tito, Khrushchev, and later Mao. And so in the late 1960s, he launched a concrete program to protect Albania from attack.
2: 750,000 to a million above-ground
8: bunkers. David Hollyard is a Dutch photographer. He's been photographing these Albanian bunkers for the past few years.
2: They're truly everywhere. And uh, you see them mostly close to the borders, of course. But they're also inland. You will find them uh, in the most strangest of places. Like in the center of cities. You don't really expect them, and then they just pop
8: out from a corner. Holyard traces the story of Albania's bunkers in a new book. He says that during Enver Hoxha's rule, some 80% of the country's budget went to building them. Halyard notes that the bunkers came in three convenient sizes. There were tiny, mushroom-shaped ones, barely big enough for two people. Then there were larger mushroom-shaped ones. And finally, big bunker complexes built into caves and rocks. After communism fell, he says, the Albanians put them to use.
2: People started to use the bunkers to uh, to live in, but also to build shops in them or grow mushrooms. Uh, and you still see that uh, today. Most of them are used for, uh, like, Hamburger stands or uh, cafeterias or little shops. But also the bigger round ones are used as uh, uh, one guy made a tattoo shop in it.
8: Most of the bunkers, though, sit empty and neglected. And now, with the Cold War years receding, people are asking, what the heck should we do with them?
2: Everybody has their own opinion. There's not one opinion about what to do with the bunkers.
8: Call it a serious love-hate relationship. Some military folks want to keep them, as a reminder of the past. Others counter they should be wiped away, like all memories of the Hoxha regime. And there's outside pressure as well. Chinese and Russian construction companies want the steel rebar for new building projects. Elton Chaushi, for one, has fond memories of the bunkers. He talked to me via Skype from the capital, Tirana.
5: I was born and raised in the very center of Tirana. We had the bunkers as well. Quite a nice place to to play. Well, I don't know the English name for this. We call this like Kukamcefti, I would call it in Albanian.
8: Hide and seek.
5: Hide and seek, yeah. Bunkers were perfect for those.
8: And as he grew older?
5: In communist years in Albania, it was not allowed to have a girlfriend and to go in a hotel or to bring her home, you know, to have a bit of privacy. So, where would the young couple go? A perfect place was to go
8: in a bunker. The problem there, Chaushi says, is that the bunkers were often used as public toilets. Anyway, these days Chaushi helps run a travel agency called Albanian Trip. Many foreign tourists, he tells me, want to see the bunkers. But I don't think Albania's tourism board has quite caught on to that yet. <laughs> This official tourism video somehow manages to show five minutes of gorgeous footage from Albania without a single bunker in sight, not even in the background, which is pretty impressive considering how many there are. Elton Chaushi is undaunted. He makes the bunkers part of his itinerary for tourists. And he's helping a colleague try to finance the renovation of bunker complexes into, yeah, little boutique hotels. The first step, he admits, is cleaning them up a bit.
0: For the world, this is Clark Boyd. Pretty crazy stuff. We have some of David Halliard's amazing bunker photos at theworld.org. Those bunkers aren't the only abandoned structures finding new life. In London, where space is at a premium and building costs high, old toilets are getting the treatment. Russell Newlove has more.
9: When the first public toilets opened in London in 1851, they were a runaway success. For a penny, visitors could get a clean seat, a towel, a comb, and a shine in bathrooms as luxurious as the rich might have at home. Victorian Civic Pride demanded that they be grand buildings, and were made from marble, ceramics and copper. Today, many of these halting stations, as they were known, still stand in the city. Though since the 1980s, most have been closed and are left to gather trash and unusual smells. But these empty properties are now being opened up again with entirely different purposes.
4: When we first came down, um, it had been boarded up for about 20 years. When we came in, the stairwell was in pretty bad condition, as you can imagine, people throwing rubbish over it for years.
9: That's Peter Tomlinson. Last month, after some rigorous scrubbing and renovating, he reopened an abandoned toilet in central London after converting it into a cafe and restaurant called The Attendant. He'd spotted the gate to the underground halting station outside a pub one evening. I
4: fell in love with um, the beautiful old urinals and the tile walls and all the original features and that kind of thing. Um, And then we developed a concept kind of around that. We never set out to create a coffee shop, but it seemed like the perfect space in which to do that.
9: Perfect for a cafe? The attendant looks clean and well lit, and there's no health and safety officers knocking on the door. But will the fact that you can drink your coffee while standing in one of the original urinals not put people off?
4: I think that the artisan coffee market is quite a kind of competitive market. And if you have a a quirky space but deliver great food and great coffee,
9: then um, we can get people down here. Toilets are the place to be in London right now. In February, one street-level loo was sold to be converted into an ice cream parlour. And last year, one architect transformed some run-down conveniences into an apartment where she now lives. Troy Norcross is originally from Missouri, but came to the UK in 2004. He's involved with Friends of Kennington Cross, a community group in South London busy converting a local loo into an art space.
6: So this is the Gentleman's Toilet, and like I said, it was opened in 1879. We took over the space about nine years ago. Um, It was actually closed to the public in 1988, and then became disused.
9: Artslav, as the space is now known, still has its original Victorian features intact. Large ceramic urinals stand against the wall, each one bearing the trademark of the B. Finch Company Limited. Now that there's power and running water, and working toilets, Norcross thinks that an underground toilet will become a big attraction for lots of people in the community.
4: Now, a toilet, in most towns, a public toilet, will get more people visit than a tourist information centre.
9: Richard Chisnell of the British Toilet Association. Yep, we've got one of those. He's devoted his life to public toilets. It's 30
4: toilets in Westminster. Over 12 million users a year through those 30 toilets. Now, that's that's an enormous number of people that get their first impression of London, of Britain, in, in Westminster's toilets.
9: The BTA worries that because officials aren't required to provide public toilets, they're the first expense to go when budget cuts hit so it's inevitable that lots more public toilets will become public spaces. Being able to charge rent for them means that otherwise empty toilets can provide relief to cash-strapped local councils. But investors should act quickly. That ice cream parlour sold for nearly $900,000, hardly the sort of money people just flush down the toilet. For The World, I'm Russell Newlove in London.
0: Russell sent pictures from the toilet-turned-café, aptly named The Attendant. I think you'll want to see that. Check them out at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Worman. Coming up, residents of a small British island struggle in the aftermath of a freak snowstorm.
4: Sheep that uh, farmers feared had perished and have actually been found somehow pulled from uh, under great snowdrifts, even today.
0: And later, protecting the treasures of one of Iraq's ancient cities. That's all ahead on the world.
3: MRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Here in Boston, it got to near 50 degrees today. Even so, we're used to the odd snowfall in springtime. You often see crocuses pushing up to the last of the white stuff. But in Britain, any snow this time of year is just plain unexpected. So when a spring storm recently walloped parts of England, Scotland, and Wales people didn't know what hit them. And on the Isle of Man, it's been potentially disastrous. People who live on the small island in the Irish Sea have been dealing with power outages and food shortages. Even worse for farmers there, hundreds of sheep and cattle are thought to have been killed. The animals the farmers believe were buried under huge snowdrifts. James Davis is host of Mandate, a current affairs program on Manx Radio. James, let's start with the storm. When did it hit?
4: Well, it hit overnight Thursday, Friday, actually. Uh, we were told that it's the heaviest recorded snowfall here for 50 years, since 1963. So that probably puts into perspective, really, the shock it's been for a lot of the Irons. Remember, we're only about an 86,000 population. So we're, mm. we're not used to it. But when it does come like this, my word, it takes us by surprise.
0: And when you talk record snowfall, how many inches are we talking about?
4: The snow drifts at their the height were up to 10 feet tall. Certainly, areas that wow. are now experiencing their fifth day without electricity, because obviously the, the snow not only wreaked havoc with the, with the power lines, if you like, but it, uh, it blocked off roads, it blocked off supplies. I mean, it really has been a shock.
0: Right. And a big shock for those farmers who uh, rear sheep and cattle. How many sheep are in question here? Are, are, and is it sure that they've perished?
4: There's been some wonderfully heartwarming stories this morning about sheep that uh, farmers feared had perished and have actually been found somehow. They're, They're obviously made of hardy stuff, They've been found alive and, and pulled from uh, under great snowdrifts even today. It's wonderful. It has been a real community spirit and uh, where it's been safe to do so, members of the public have really rallied round it and gone out with farmers and tried to pull those to safety. But there has been some so- sorry tales and, and we don't actually know the full extent, but there is talk that certain farms may go out of business. Equally, I was speaking to a farmer this morning who managed to reach her livestock uh, put them in uh, two small sheds. The sheer weight of the snow on the roof meant uh, it collapsed and the sheep were killed. So, uh, uh, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be protected.
0: What are you hearing from sheep farmers? Are, are they worried? I mean, aside from uh, the farm that rediscovered their sheep, there's still a, a risk here that uh, they might not find those
4: sheep. Th- there's still very much at a risk. And I think what was sort of the most upsetting was the fact that, that some farmers could hear their sheep crying in the fields yet simply were just not able to get to them. And, of course, it's a twofold thing. We we have the, the civil defence going out, of course, and there's been uh, mothers and th- a three-week-old baby rescued. In, in one case, we've had uh, a local hall open to provide warmth and drinks to those people who are, who are off power. But on the, uh, in the actual farming side, we've had people who... Just cannot get access because you have infrastructure trying to clear routes in one sense to allow the electricity engineers to try and restore power. By the time you reach the farms, in some cases, it can be too late.
0: How do you navigate through 10 foot snowdrifts when, uh, you know, the Isle of Man is clearly not prepared for this kind of weather in, in the springtime? Uh, well,
4: that's the multi-million dollar question, I suppose. I mean, it's a, a one-in-a-50-year event with high winds, and that's the worst possible condition for overhead lines. There's been about 3,000 calls of around 1,000 customers needing help. So I, I think at the moment it really has been an eye-opener. Um, catastrophic losses, potentially. The search continuing for, for lots of animals buried in snow. But I'm sure the stories will probably unfold in, in the days and weeks ahead of some of the, the rescue operations. But certainly... It's been very difficult in extreme conditions.
0: What's the weather forecast for the next few days?
4: Well, the forecast is, is dry, that the snow flurries that we've had even up to this morning are now hopefully behind us. It is staying cold, bitingly cold. That means at night it's freezing. So they're hopeful that within the next 24 hours or so, all the power will be back on. But I don't think we'll be able to count the full cost of this for some time yet.
0: James Davis with Minx Radio on the Isle of Man. Thanks for telling us about this. Appreciate your time. Thank you. The British Isles aren't alone in suffering through a devastating late winter snow. Communities across parts of the U.S. have been hit hard these past few days and weeks as well. And as often happens when winter just won't give up, a lot of people are left wondering what the heck ever happened to global warming. Well, it turns out that a long winter in parts of the northern hemisphere is not incompatible with global warming. And in fact, it could be a result of record warming in the Arctic. That's according to a growing body of research on how warming in the far north – disrupts the usual winter atmospheric barrier between the Arctic and the lower latitudes. That can cause cold air to spill southward and create big, slow-moving loops in the jet stream that can bring unusually cold and wintry weather to regions that are expecting crocuses and forsythia. Meanwhile, some are worrying about the prospect of not getting enough snow. Russia is hosting the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. And just in case Mother Nature doesn't provide, the organizers have started to stockpile snow for next year's games. This year's winter has been unseasonably warm there, and organizers fear that could happen next year, too. So, how to store a massive pile of snow? Apparently, they're covering it with a special thermo seal to protect it from melting over the summer. After North Korea, many used to single out Myanmar or Burma as the most repressive government on earth. That's changed over the past two years or so as the country's six decade old military dictatorship has given way to gradual democratic reforms. But reform can have a dark side, too. And in Burma, the new freedoms have allowed old tensions to come to the surface. We've seen that in the past week with anti-Muslim riots that have left dozens of people dead. Tunkin is a Burmese Muslim activist based in London. Um, Tun Tunkin, tell us what's been going on in this Burmese city of Miktila. What, what are your friends and contacts in Myanmar telling you?
5: Well, since last Wednesday, many Muslims were killed and hundreds of Muslims' homes were destroyed, shops damaged and looted, and more than about 15,000 Muslims displaced. This is what
0: I am hearing from Burma. Do you have family still back in Myanmar? What are they telling you? How concerned are they? And what well, they? my family actually living in former
5: capital of Burma, Rangoon. But through some some friends of mine, they are telling the information that it is very shocking. Some people are saying they have never seen in in the world what happened last few days in Mithila. Do you know no, of any families uh, personally who have been attacked? Uh the eyewitness, uh, one of uh, my friend's friend, was telling that what he have seen is while they were running for their lives, they have seen some children and some old people. They couldn't run fast, and the the Buddhist extremists thugs, you know, they just killed them straight away. You know, they, they didn't seen. ask
0: them any questions. They didn't any ask them if they were Muslim or anything like that. They just, how no. did they kill them? They got knives and swords. Oh, gosh. So, uh, and this is all in Miktila? Yeah, in Miktila. How have people who are non-Muslim in Miktila been reacting to this? Have they tried to stop any of the attacks? Well, I should say that uh, some people, some Buddhist people
5: from Miktila, they help the Muslim people. So that's what we can see here is according to some friends' friend. It's not from the people. The people are not from the Mitila; Those are some strangers and led by some monks also. Those people who attacked are not from the Mitila city. Was there a single event that triggered this violence? I, I should say this is a proper plan. 969 anti-Muslim group organized this
0: attack. So you're saying this was organized in advance and there were plans to go to this city and burn people's houses.
5: Yes, before a few days they were distributing leaflets and some monks are preaching about hatred against Muslims. It's about
0: 3-4 months going on that that these, and, these monks have been preaching this violence, you say. Yes. Yeah. Twin Kin, I've got to say the idea, the notion that Buddhists might be attacking Muslims, especially Buddhist monks stirring up this this violence is not going to make a lot of sense to people. How do Buddhists become extremists, resorting to violence?
5: Firstly, I should say this is not Buddhists against Muslims. What is it then? This is a plan done by 969 campaign group to attack Muslims. You know, this is a group organized by some people, you know, anti-Muslim groups, anti-Muslim people, they organize with some Buddhist monks, you know to attack the Muslims. That's what we got, the news. And we also heard there's some heartliners involved in here, you know, who do not want to see
0: reform in Burma. Tun Kin, president of the Burmese Rohingya organization in the UK. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. Aung Zha is founder and editor of the Irrawaddy magazine. For years, he and the magazine were in exile in Thailand, but now they're back in Burma. Aung Zha, though, joins us from California at the moment. So, Aung Zha, we think of Burma as a good news story. You know, the democratic reforms recently, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, finally free and now a lawmaker, the country opening up. What or who is behind this pretty brutal violence against Muslims?
10: Well, I think the attack is very systematic, very well organized and well-funded Politically motivated, I would say, to undermine this progress has been achieved by the current government so far. So it's a big challenge for the President Teng Seng and this rise of uh, this anti-Muslim and uh, sectarian violence. And they want the military to come back to restore law and order. So these are hard elements, rivals to the President Teng Seng are trying to undermine this ongoing momentum of the reform progress in Burma. So I, I think difficult to name names at the moment, but these right-wing groups, aside from the monks, are definitely involved in this violence.
0: What is the government of President Ten doing to address the anti-Muslim violence?
10: Well, not much. This is a the problem. There, there was a Criticism towards a hasty decision made by him to bring in troops to control the situation. I think the riot police are well equipped, but they don't control the crowd. The irony is, as we all know, in 1988 and 2007, whenever Burmese people took to the street to end the military government, these riot police were very quick to come to the streets and more down the people and then kill everyone whoever they see as as a threat, but this time the riot police and security forces are idle and um, they were just stood by and watching as as the city being burned down to the ground. So, but well, they
0: have uh, officials have given Muslims safe shelter in stadiums, I gather.
10: Well, yeah, I mean a lot of mosques being being burned down and attacked and then shops being being attacked and destroying the people and a broad daylight Muslim being brought to the streets and then doused with the patrol and then killed. Finally, the soldier came to, which is quite reassuring to see that, uh, you know, our security forces came back, and our military came back. That also arises suspicions among the Burmese who in the past know that Military always came back with a very big excuse to, to control the country and as an attitude of, you need me, you know. So so, so people worried that the uh, military will justify its role to come back to the center stage.
0: Now, I know Aung San Suu Kyi spoke out against the anti-Muslim violence in November of last year, but uh, more recently, how has she and her uh, National League for Democracy party responded to the crisis?
10: I think... Uh, hard party members were involved in uh, humanitarian assistance to the victims but she's been refrained from making any any comment and uh, and it was not very surprising i think i think in a lot of issues in with the ethnic issues with kachins and also with the rohingya at some point and even this issue and she's been she's been quite silent which is very disturbing to see that uh, she somehow has lost her moral leadership.
0: Is that a sign for you that she doesn't care, or that the government in Burma is trying to microengineer something?
10: Today, she's been seen as a pragmatic politician, and uh, is no longer a people's leader. I think uh, she's in a system, and she's now a chairwoman of the Law and Order uh, Law and Order Committee. So, I, I think she has changed a lot. So, people see the other side of Aung San Suu Kyi these days.
0: Zaw, founder and editor of the Irrawaddy magazine, thank you very much for speaking with us.
10: Thank you very much.
0: Sometimes our daily geo-quiz asks you for a long answer. Today it's short, just two letters long. There are plenty of places with really short names around the globe. Some place names consist of just one letter. For example, there's a river in Russia named Y, just the letter Y, Or the river in the Scottish Highlands that's called E. That's the capital letter E. And supposedly there's a place in Panama called U. But for today's quiz, we're asking for two letters. We want you to name an ancient Mesopotamian city in what is now Iraq. Its cultural heyday was 4,000 years ago, but its ruins survive to this day.
11: There's the famous uh, royal cemetery, there's the ziggurat, there are public buildings of all kinds. You really get a sense of what a Mesopotamian city looked like.
0: Some of the city's ancient treasures of gold and lapis lazuli are exhibited in Iraq's National Museum in Baghdad. Others are in museums in Britain and the U.S. But the question for you is, can you name the ancient capital of Mesopotamia? This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This week, Passover dinners or seders are happening in many Jewish households. Many recount the biblical narrative of Moses and the Ten Plagues. Others take the history further back to when Abraham left Mesopotamia. His home is said by some to be the city of Ur. You are in what is now Iraq. And Ur, by the way, is the answer to our geoquist today. So what's there today in Ur. Elizabeth Stone is an anthropologist at Stony Brook University who's been to Ur. Elizabeth, for you, what makes the city of Ur in Mesopotamia so important? What remains of its ancient glory?
11: Well, I I think there are two things, one of which is it was the capital of Mesopotamia at a very critical time when Mesopotamia was really powerful. Um, But then the other thing about it is that unlike most Mesopotamian sites that are built of mud brick, it uses a lot of baked brick, which means there's a lot to see there and you can see the real architecture. And then the other thing is that it was excavated in the 1920s and 30s by Leonard Woolley and he really dug it. And so there's a lot to see there. There's residential districts, there's the famous uh, Royal Cemetery, there's the ziggurat at there public buildings of all kinds you really get a sense of what a Mesopotamian city looked like from mm. there
0: And when you say Mr. Woolley really dug it, you mean figuratively and literally?
11: Yes. You know, he would have like nearly 300 workmen uh, working away for five months a year, and he did it um, for over a decade. So that's a lot of dirt to move.
0: Where did all those treasures go?
11: This was a time when there was a division where National Museum would take the best pieces, and then the other pieces would be divided 50% between the Iraq Museum and 50% between the sponsoring museums, which are the British Museum and the University of Pennsylvania. And so about a little less
0: than half of the material is in those two museums. And during the U.S. occupation during the Iraq War, what was happening in Ur?
11: Mostly it was neglected. I mean, there is some damage and mostly that comes from neglect. Um, There were a couple of rocket attacks on the American air base, which was next door, which fell on Ur. But I mean, the holes that they Made were minor, I would say. There weren't very many. That's a relatively peaceful part of Iraq.
0: It's widely believed, as I suggested earlier by Christians and Jews, that Ur was the birthplace of Abraham. Muslims see the city as the home of Ibrahim. Is there archaeological evidence to support this?
11: Well, the idea comes from the Bible, which says that he came from Ur. But the question is, is this the Ur he came from? Because, I mean, I think think most scholars would put him further up towards Syria. That's just where everything else would seem to be. And, of course, if you've got a one-syllable name, there likely to be more than one of you so that's where it came from Um, certainly there is material that would be contemporary there's a whole housing area that would be contemporary with Abraham dating to the early second millennium and if you read Woolley carefully in his writings for the larger populace he will talk about it a house in fact as being the house of Abraham which is the biggest one that he dug up that's when he was trying to raise money for his projects but when you look at his his formal publications he never mentions it.
0: And of all the treasures uh, gathered in Ur in 1922, is there one that you're particularly fond of?
11: It has to be the material from the royal tombs, which date to the third millennium. I mean, they are just spectacular in some places, gold jewelry. In other cases, maybe it's the royal standard of Ur that I like the most. It's an enclosed box, but I don't think anybody could get into it. that has pictures of war on one side and peace on the other. I um, mean, it's all lapis lazuli and it's all kind of inlaid. Um, but may- maybe what I really like is Queen Puabi's necklace. I keep hoping somebody will make a reproduction of it and they don't. Describe it lapis lazuli and gold, and each piece is triangular, and so you've got upright and vertical triangles kind of intersecting together, and it's like a choker. It's beautiful.
0: Well, we hope there is a reproduction that pleases you at some point in the near future. I keep hoping. (laughs) Elizabeth Stone, an anthropologist at Stony Brook University, who's actually been to UR. That is spelled U-R. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Finally today, a different sort of treasure from the past. The 1960s produced a seemingly inordinate share of musical movements for a single decade. There was surf rock, British Invasion pop, and later in the decade, psychedelic rock. And all three of those movements influenced musicians in Asia to create a genre all their own. Tom Schnabel of station KCRW tells us about a new CD collection called Pop Ye yeah Ye. Yeah.
12: Pop Yeah Yeah was a musical movement in Singapore and Malaysia which came just as the two countries became completely independent of Britain in 1963. The Yeah Yeah in Pop Yeah Yeah was the uh, invention of a Malaysian journalist who took it from the Beatles, She Loves You Yeah Yeah Yeah. The first song we'll check out from Pop Yeah Yeah is by Rosaya Latif and the Jayhawkers. It's called Aku Kechewa. It's a love song about disappointment. <laughs> Music from Rosiah Latif and the Jayhawkers from Pop Ya yeah, yeah, Psychedelic Rock from Singapore and Malaysia, 1964 to 1970. What I love about Pop Yeah Ya, yeah, it just sort of shows how the kids in Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, and uh, Malaysia basically glommed on to uh, to pop music from the early 1960s and made it their own. The interesting thing, you'll have something that sounds like a Beach Boy song or a Beatles song, and all of a sudden you'll hear kind of an Arabic mode or something that sounds more like a Bollywood Indian song style. So you have these, this kind of wonderful mixture and this kind of synergy that makes this music so much fun. Let's check out Raja Ahmad and Dengen Dengdang Irama. Kind of sounds like the Beach Boys done Malaysian style. Oh, la,
9: la, 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 amilaku, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah san matamu, Oh yeah yeah
12: I learned a lot from listening to Pop Yeah Yeah. For one thing, these records have really never come out in the West, and the 45 RPM 7 inch singles probably were buried somewhere in vaults or wherever, and probably no one else had heard them, even in Malaysia. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a small revelation to hear all this music coming out again. Let's take it out with a song called Siyurga Idaman, which means paradise. Check out the surf guitar that launches it. Music from pop yeah yeah psychedelic rock from Singapore and Malaysia covering the years nineteen sixty four to nineteen seventy. This is rare groove and quite a production, twenty-six songs, forty page booklet, totally fun too. For the world, I'm Tom Schnabel.
0: I'm having fun. Tom comes to us from station KCRW in Santa Monica, California, and we come to you from the NAN and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI,
3: and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
12: PRI Public Radio International